So before we go any further, I need to know something. Does anybody in here actually eat peeps? No, anybody? Any peep eaters? I see Tyler. Oh, Crystal, who just had a single release. Come on, check it out online. There you go. Who else? Somebody else had it in the bit. Oh, come on, the fields. Logan. Oh, Brian. Brian's a peeps. <laughs> He's like, I'll take all the peeps you have. There you go, sir. Nice. Nice. I can't stand them. Right? Anybody else when you got an Easter egg basket, when you were an Easter basket when you were a kid, if you saw candy in there you didn't like, you're like, my parents don't know me. Right? My, my favorite candy, licorice, jelly beans. I was an old soul. Any, who's my li- so I got an ooh from over here. Who's the ooh? Uh, uh, ooh all right. Ooh. Yeah. All right. That's okay. Little judgment here in the church. Who, who are my licorice people? Anybody else? All right, I don't have any licorice, but I do have my next favorite, the Cadbury egg. I would get one of these for Easter, and I would save it, right? It would be the last thing that I ate. Any, who's my Cadbury egg people? Anybody? No? Cadbury egg people? All right, and then we're also, we have a little extra for Kristen, because she's wearing Birkenstocks. And we, <laughs> we honor the Birkenstock at City Life. Who, uh, Cadbury? Cadbury? All right. All right, I've got to save some for the other side. All right, here. All right. All right. No, sorry. Maybe Jamie will share. Here's Cadbury. Cadbury. All right, I got one more for over here. Oh, here you go. All right. There it is. Cadbury eggs. I know. I can't believe they still make those. I don't think I could eat one today, though. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. And just, you know, I know we're a water-only sanctuary, but it is Easter, so you can eat your candy. Just, just. But once a year, right, once a year, we'll make an exception for the peep and for the Cadbury egg. Now, what you didn't know was that all those Easter egg hunts that you did growing up were preparing you for adulthood. Like your kids, if, if they're in kid life, they're getting candy tonight. It's, it's part of the Christian experience. It's so that you can practice patience in your home. Forgiveness can be demonstrated. It's all there, wrapped up in the Easter egg hunt. But the Easter egg hunt, what you didn't know when you were a child, was preparing you for adulthood. Did you know that? To give you the skills that you needed to figure out when Easter was actually going to happen. Because when you become an adult, you got to work hard to figure out when Easter's coming. You're searching, you're going online, you're asking your friends, you're calling your pastor. And, and at some point you ask the question, if we can do Christmas on the same day every year, right, if we can celebrate his birth at the same time, why can't we just pick one day in the spring and celebrate his resurrection? But it moves all over the place. And what I would say to you is it's important that it moves all over the place because it teaches us something about what Christ does for us. Over 3,000 years ago, there was the first Passover. Passover began last night at sunset. And over 3,000 years ago, we find that there is a story in history where God set his people free. Now, whether you're of the Charlton Heston era like me, or the Christian Bale era like these people over here, 
You understand the story of the Exodus and the plagues that came and how God did things to set his people free because the Egyptians in their rebellion would say one thing, but then they would turn around and do something else. And so he had to keep ratcheting it up until finally the final plague was a plague of death. But the Israelites had an out that they would take a lamb, they would sacrifice that lamb, they would eat that lamb, and then they would put the blood of that lamb on the doorpost of their home. And when the death angel passed through Egypt, the death angel would pass over every home where there was the blood of the lamb. Now, if you read this story like it's the good guys versus the bad guys when it comes to the Israelites and the Egyptians, you're reading this story wrong. And for some of us, that's how we've presented it to our children. But it's not a story about the good guys and the bad guys. It's a story about the forgiven and the unforgiven. Because when the Israelites get out into the wilderness on the way to the promised land, you know what we learn about them? is that they're the bad guys too, because they're people. Now you would think after what God had done to set them free, they would have been the most well-behaved people ever. It didn't take them long, did it? It would not have taken you or I long either. Forgiven versus the unforgiven. That's the difference in that story. It's those who availed themselves to the sacrifice that God made possible. It's interesting, too, that the Mosaic Law tells us that in that very very first Passover meal, that if the family was too small to eat all of the lamb, that they would have to gather together with other families because none of the lamb was to be wasted. And so we infer from that 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 means that it could be that maybe three or four families would have to gather together and the blood of the lamb was put on all of those families' homes. Now that's important for us because God was trying to tell us something. The reason he established the feast of Passover wasn't just to say to the nation of Israel, look back and remember what God has done, But he established the feast of Passover to say to the world, look forward to what I will one day do. They were supposed to look back. They were supposed to remember so that they could tell a story to the world that this is how God will one day save us all. People had to gather together to eat that lamb as a prophetic picture that Jesus is big enough to die for the sins of every person who's ever lived. There's enough of him for all of us. And if you're like me, there's a lot of forgiveness that we need. We too are undeserving. We don't deserve God's goodness, his blessings, his favor, his acceptance, but we are so loved. And if we accept the sacrifice that God has provided, Jesus himself, there is forgiveness for you and for me. We sing about it tonight, 1 Corinthians 15, 55. O death, where is thy sting? And O grave, where is thy victory? 
Jesus' death and resurrection, he conquers sin and death. And obviously, we can't understate the, the exuberance, the, the sheer euphoria that swept through every follower of Christ on that first Easter morning. But a year later, they were a little bit confused because they couldn't figure out when they were supposed to celebrate Easter. Now, Jesus died and his resurrection were right on top of Passover. Well, that's not an accident because he is the Passover lamb. But next year, they didn't have Easter egg hunts, so they couldn't figure out when Easter was going to be. They weren't ready. Right? They can't figure it out because next year, Passover and Sunday morning, which is the first day of the week in the Jewish calendar, which is when Jesus rose from the dead, they didn't happen at the same time. What are we going to do? So some Christian communities, they said we're going to celebrate Jesus' resurrection on Passover because it's all about his forgiveness. And then there were other Christian communities that celebrated it on the Sunday morning that came after Passover or the one that was before Passover, one that kind of fell close to it because they felt like his resurrection, which was the pronouncement that he was the final sacrifice for the sins of the world because he conquered sin and death, then that's when they would sell. And for the next 300 years, churches all over the known world couldn't decide when they were going to celebrate Easter. And then in 325, the Council of Nicaea gathered together. They had a lot on their agenda that day, but one of them was we are going to unify the church so that we will all celebrate it at the same time. Now, it was a little bit tricky because there were two camps. There was the Passover camp, and then there was the Sunday morning camp. And both of them brought their arguments as to which one it should be. And like any decision that should be made in a Christian community, what they found was that it was through the wisdom of both that they found an idea that none had conceived. That because the Passover of the Jews is connected to the cycles of the moon because the Jewish nation is back then was run off of a lunar calendar, that there is something called the Passover moon. How many, were you out Thursday night? Did you look up? Did you see? Full moon outside. Passover now. That Every year, there is a full moon that comes after the vernal equinox, which is the first day of spring. Now, the Mosaic Law requires that Passover happen during springtime. So this council came up with the wisdom that we've been now following for centuries, that because Sunday morning is also important, that Easter every year will be celebrated on the first Sunday morning that follows the Passover moon, which is the first full moon that comes after the vernal equinox. And that's what we've been doing ever since. And that's why it moves around. And what I would say to you, we don't want it to be like Christmas. We want it to move around. It needs to move around. Because it needs to always honor its connection to the Passover because Jesus died for our sins. And it's the only way that forgiveness is possible. And it needs to be connected to his resurrection because it reminds us that he is the final sacrifice and that it's only through him can our relationship with God, can it be restored. So every year coming into spring, put your Easter egg hunting skills to work. 
between March 22nd and April 25th, it's going to be in there somewhere. We're preparing the next generation outside right now to figure it out when they become old like you and I. But the story of the history of Easter, it keeps going, and it's important because it teaches us something about our relationship with God. Because at some point, they had to come up with a name. In the year 700 AD, we find these ancient writings by monks that lived in what we'll call Old England. And when these early evangelists came into this area of the world, they found a group of people that had a pagan practice that every year in springtime, they would worship the newness of life that comes with nature. And the goddess that they worshipped, that they attributed all of this life to, guess what her name was? It was spelled E-O-S-T-R-E. That's interesting. Now, if you've read these articles, and maybe you're here tonight, and you're of the camp that Christianity took this name to accommodate paganism, I would say to you, Christianity has never accommodated paganism in history. It's not the nature of who God is. And if you read history that way, you're reading it all wrong. See, these early evangelists, as they began to interact with these pagan people that had this pagan practice, they would have had a conversation, like you have conversations with people today. Maybe from a different culture, maybe from a different country, and you begin to learn about their customs and practices, and, and, and you can imagine this conversation would have gone something along the lines of, tell me about this festival that, that you have here in spring of every year. They would have explained, right, that this is the time where we worship this, this goddess who gives us new life, and we celebrate the newness of life in nature, right? And a skilled evangelist would have stepped right in and said, oh, that's interesting. We have a celebration that we do this time every year also. But it's not to celebrate the newness of life in nature. It's to celebrate the newness of life that a man by Jesus can bring about in the nature of mankind. And they would begin to talk to these people about the one true God and the life that can come within and about how forgiveness can be found through him and about how when he rose from the dead that he conquered sin and death. And you know what began to happen? that all of these pagan people in old England, they began to lay down their pagan practices and began to embrace Christianity. And they brought with them a name. Christianity did not adopt the name to assimilate pagans. Christianity did not compromise to accommodate a pagan festival. Christianity does What Christianity always does, inside the human heart, it takes over. Because Christ is a king. And Jesus is not looking, when we come to him, to assimilate into some expression of Christianity all the things that we do that we know that we're supposed to lay down and that he's trying to help us to begin to set aside. We don't enter into a negotiation with Christ because Christ seeks surrender because he is a king. And it is the ultimate surrender that he longs from you and I. The history of Easter tells us that we need forgiveness. 
that Jesus is the only way and that when he comes, he wants to overtake every part of our lives. So my second question for you, right? The first one is, do you eat peeps? The first, second one's a little bit more important. Are you ready for a so loved life to take you over? Are you ready for a so loved life to overtake you and everything about you, every part of who you are? Have you ever come to a place in your encounter with Christ where there's something inside of you that longs to lay down all of who you are at his feet. I remember years ago at one of my first jobs, I was working in a call center and I was sitting next to one of my coworkers and we were, it was in between calls coming in, it was a slow night and he said, uh, he said Fred, did I ever tell you the, the, uh, the story of when I met my uh, wife's parents for the first time? I said, no, no. He said, well, I, I had, we were planning to go out for dinner, and I was already at the restaurant, and my wife was coming with her family. They, they lived on a farm uh, outside of Richmond, and so I got this call from her that they were going to be late, and the connection wasn't great, but, but, but what I heard her say, but right before she, she hung up, is that we're going to be late because there's been a hay fire. So when they get there, he's all concerned. Like he's outside of the restaurant. This is a true story. He's waiting for them to walk up, and he's never met them before. And so he's, you know, he's like, I really need to show that I'm concerned. I got I to gotta, I gotta do the right thing here. And, and so, so, so as soon as they get out of the car, he's, he goes to her father's hand and shakes his hand and says, is everything okay with the farm? And he's like, yeah, it's all right. And, and, and he thought, you know, his response was, you know, a little bit cold. I'm here you know, trying to do the right thing here, I'm trying to care for you. You're in a crisis. So then he goes to the mother-in-law and says, are all the animals okay? And she's like, yeah, animals are okay. Why don't we just go inside? So they sit down. This is a true story. So the whole meal, he keeps coming back and asking these questions, and they keep giving him these odd responses. Sometimes they ignore his question, and they just change the subject. And the entire meal was this incredibly awkward exchange and conversation of questions being asked, and it was almost as like they were trying to hide something. So he's beginning to think, what what kind of family am I getting involved with here? And they're thinking, who is my daughter falling in love with? This guy is strange. Right? The father's thinking, my daughter's going to call me and say, what do you think? And I'm going to have to say, you've got, you got to get away from this guy. He's not stable. So the meal's over. They leave, and, and, and his now wife looks at him and says, what's wrong with you? Why are you so weird? And he's like, I'm not weird. You're weird. Your whole family's weird. She's like, What? He says, who comes to a dinner after there's been a hay fire on their farm and acts like nothing's happened? And she's like, there wasn't a hay fire. He's like, no, when, I, when you called, you said we were going to be late because there's a hay. She said, no, I said a half hour. We're going to be late by a half hour. <laughs> they still laugh about it today. Right? You, you can imagine, right, this... Future father-in-law is thinking, this is what Thanksgiving's going to be like. I'm out. I'm done. I can't do it. I don't care how much she loves him. I'm not giving, it, I'm not giving her way to this guy. Love that story. But this is how life is like for us so many times when we read Scripture. We come to verses of the Bible, and we're convinced that it's saying one thing to us when God's trying to say something completely different. 
And this is what happens to us, I believe, with John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Whatever translation you've used, whatever is familiar to you, there's lots of them out there. It is probably, it is arguably the most famous verse in all of Scripture. And I would suggest to you this afternoon that all of that verse hinges on one word, and it's the word so. Now, in our culture and in our vernacular, we use the word so in lots of different ways, and they did also in Jesus' day. There's the sarcasm so, right, that's responsible for teenagers being grounded everywhere. <laughs> you didn't clean up your room today, so yep, that's how it plays out, you know. Anybody here grounded right now for using so inappropriately in your home, right? Then there's extreme so, like some of you right now. I wish this guy would stop talking because I am so hungry. I'm so tired. I'm so excited that my friend invited me to come to church. There's the extreme so. Now, John 3.16 is about extreme so some but there's other parts of the Bible that are more focused on how extreme God's love is for us, like Romans 8, 38 and 39. And I am convinced that nothing can separate us from God's love, neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is re revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's extreme love. That's extreme so. But John 3.16 is not extreme so. In fact, it's a very specific word in the Greek language. It's the word huto. And it's the exactly like this, so. That's what this word means. So when you read John 3.16, it's not for God so loved the world like people maybe sometimes in life are so happy or so sad or so excited. When it says for God so loved the world, what Jesus was saying is let me tell you exactly how much he loves you. He's going to send me his only son to die for the sins of the world, that I'm going to be the ultimate Passover lamb, that I'm going to conquer sin and death on the day of my resurrection. But this verse is not just telling us about how God loves us. It's supposed to tell us how we're supposed to love him in turn. And if you only ever read John 3.16 as an extreme so kind of love verse, then you're only ever going to see the kind of love that he has for you. But John 3.16 isn't just in the Bible to tell you how much God loves you. It's in the Bible because he's trying to teach you how you're supposed to love him back because that verse teaches us how love works. So loved, always so loves. So loved, always so loves. Matthew 21, 28. But what do you think about this? A man with two sons told the older boy, son, go out and work in the vineyard today. And the son answered, so? No, he doesn't. He says, no, I won't go. Not going to do it, he says. But later he changed his mind and he went anyway. 
Then the father told his other son, you go. And he said, yes, sir, I will. But he didn't go. Which of the two obeyed his father? They replied, the first. Then Jesus explained this meaning. I tell you the truth, corrupt tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you do. Because Jesus is trying to help the world to understand that to say that you love God is, is one thing. But to do something that demonstrates that you love him is something else. And that's how God loves you and me. For God so loved that he so loves. That I'm going to tell you I love you. You can't read this book without getting very far to hear that God says that he loves you. But just as often as there are verses where God says that he loves you, there is story after story after story after story where he shows that he loves you. Because John 3.16 is trying to teach you and he's trying to teach me what a soul-loved life looks like. Because you and I, we have two circles. You're going to see them on the screen. We've got a circle of saying, and we've got a circle of doing. And for some of us, we've got an Easter egg Christianity. Because the overlap of the two are just barely enough to create a little bit of a shape of something. Many of us have a big saying circle when it comes to our life. Whether you're a devoted follower of Christ or maybe you've never made a vow of devotion to Christ, but you probably still have a saying circle when it comes to your relationship with God. You might talk about how you love Him. You might talk about how you believe in Him. You might even tell other people about Him. For many of us, we come into services like this, especially on holidays that are significant like this one, and, and, and we worship in all of those songs that we sang, the powerful ones, even the hymns that nobody under 25 knew what we were talking about. They're like, that must be what speaking in tongues is. I can't understand a word that they're saying. There's a saying circle. For some of you, you lived your whole life and your Christianity has just been a circle of saying. But John 3.16 is in the Bible to say to you and me, there's a circle of doing. And is there a life that I live that reflects the words that I say? My attitudes, the way I respond to people through decisions that I make, actions that I have, the marriage that I'm invested in, the manner in which I parent my children, is your saying life reflected in your doing life? Because John 3.16 says that so loved always so loves. You can say that you love, but what does your life look like Day in and day out. What about the secret thoughts that you and I have that only God himself knows? Even in those places, what does our love look like that we proclaim and profess? Did you know that God has two circles also? 
He does. But when you see them, it looks like one. Because everything that he says to you about his love for you, he does, without exception. He has two circles because he has a will. But when you see it, when you see it, it looks like one. This message was born in a Praxis 9 class a couple of months ago. If you've been thinking about that internship, we're taking applications now, and I know some of you are, and I brought applications for you on the front row, and you know who you are because you have a lump in your throat right now, so you make sure you just come up and get one of those at the end of the service. The story of Judas, the one who betrayed him. Luke 22, 1 to 7. Since the festival of unleavened bread, which is also called Passover, was approaching, and the leading priests and teachers of religious law were plotting to kill Jesus, but they were afraid of people's reaction. Listen to what. Listen to verse three. Then Satan entered into Judas Iscariot. Entered into him. Not just tempted him. Not just tried to lead him astray. But the Bible's very clear. Entered into who who he was. who was one of the 12 disciples, and he went to the leading priests and captains of the temple guard to discuss the best way to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted, and they promised to give him money. He's got a circle problem. So he agreed and began looking for an opportunity to betray Jesus so they could arrest him when the crowds weren't around. Now, the festival of unleavened bread had arrived when the Passover lamb is sacrificed. Now let's jump over to the Gospel of John, because the Gospel of John seems to tell a little bit different of a story. And and can I just encourage you, whenever you find something in the Bible that seems to contradict itself, there is not a contradiction, because the Bible's divinely inspired. And God puts those apparent contradictions in there as breadcrumbs, as clues, because he's trying to draw us into something deeper. Now, John 13 says, now Jesus was deeply troubled, and he exclaimed, I tell you the truth, one will betray me. Now, where are we now? Now, we're at the Last Supper. So, the Bible's already told us that sometime before this, Judas plotted with the religious leaders of Jesus' day, and that Satan entered into him. Now, we've got days later, possibly weeks later, that here's Jesus with his 12 and many others in the upper room, and they're sharing a meal. The disciples looked at each other wondering, who who could he mean? The disciple Jesus, this is great, right? Because this is John's gospel. So he said, you know, the disciple that Jesus loved was sitting next to him, which was John. Simon Peter motioned him to ask, who's he talking about? Ask Jesus who he's talking about. So the disciple leaned over to Jesus and asked, Lord, who is it? And Jesus responded, it is the one to whom I give the bread I dip in the bowl. Right? Immediately, John put his hands in his pockets. And when he had dipped it, he gave it to Judas. And when Judas had eaten the bread, here it comes, Satan entered into him. Now, that's curious, because I thought he was already in him, because that's what Luke said. Jesus told him, hurry and do what you're going to do. 
I had never noticed that in Scripture before until in this class, the right, practice nine, come on, they're digging around, they're looking for stuff, and it set us on a journey. It be, became a study that became the seed of this message for Easter of 2019. You see, both Luke and John are right, because the devil cannot be everywhere at the same time. He's not omnipresent. See, when you and I make a vow of devotion to Christ, the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of us. But he doesn't go, oh, somebody else made a vow of devotion. I'll be right back. Oh, somebody else over there. No, no, no. He's both somewhere and everywhere all at the same time. Omnipresent. Lucifer? Oh, he's not. He can only be in one place at a time. So what we're finding here in this story is that he takes possession of Judas for the ultimate evil act, but then he's got to leave him because he's got other things to do. And then he comes back to him in the upper room. Now this is important for us because if you believe about Jesus what we believe about Jesus, which is that he's also all-knowing, he's fully God and fully man, he knows already that Lucifer has taken possession of Judas. He knows already that Judas has planned to betray him. But yet even still, he invites this man to his table. Even still, he got down. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and he got down on his hands and knees, and he washed that man's feet. Who here is doing that? Oh, you've been betrayed before. I have. The last thing we want to do is serve somebody. But even on that night, he doesn't skip over Judas. He doesn't say, Judas, you don't have a seat at my table. He pulls him closer, close enough. He gives him a seat at the table so he's close enough to reach him with the bread. Why would he do that? Now, if you're cynical, you would say, well, he needed somebody to betray him, right? The story's got to play out. But I don't think that's how God works. I think Judas had a seat at that table because he knew that he had betrayed him. He knew that he had experienced evil like no one had ever experienced evil before when Lucifer himself took, what was it like when the devil left him? Can we just, what was that like? The embodiment of evil comes into him and then leaves him? Oh, I think Judas was at that table because this is what Jesus does for us. He's always there to give us one more chance. He's always there. You see, this is how I read this story now. Lucifer was in that room. And Jesus is like, nope, not yet. Nope, we're giving him one more chance. Nope. 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 Can you imagine what Judas was wrestling with in that moment? Something inside of him welling up, longing to confess what he had done. But yet he turned away. He turned away. And in that moment, Lucifer comes in one more time. And Jesus dies for the sins of the world. Can I just tell you, Jesus was going to die for the sins of the world, whether Judas betrayed him or not. God does not need a patsy to make his story work. He's the sovereign creator 
of the universe. Judas was not there to play a part. Judas was there for one more chance at redemption. Because that's what Jesus does when he sees someone whose circles are moving away from each other at such a rate and at such a velocity that they might not ever touch again. Jesus in that room with Judas had a hand on both of the circles of Judas' life, the circle of his saying, for the last three years walking with Christ and all that he had professed, and then his circle of doing that was drifting away faster than he could imagine. And Jesus is holding them there in that moment to try to change the direction of this man's life. Some of you here tonight, the story of your circles is one where you need Christ to come in and intervene in your life just like he did for Judas. I'm not saying that you're evil. I'm not saying that you've done the things that Judas has done. But you can relate to his journey. That your circle of saying and your circle of doing that they stopped touching a long time ago. You're here tonight and you're saying, Fred, you don't know what I would give for my circle to even just look remotely like a little Easter egg. Just to see them overlap just again one more time. I remember for me, it was in the summer of 1991, and I had made a vow of devotion to Christ in December of 1990. I was 23 years old, been running from God my whole life. My circles weren't even close to touching. And God got a hold of my heart, and I made a vow of devotion to him through the church that I'd been visiting that my parents attended, and they talked about this missions trip that was going to be happening that summer. They were going to this little country called Belize on the Yucatan Peninsula next to Mexico. So I signed up to go on this trip. Now, I had made promises to give my life to Christ all growing up because I grew up in the church. But my circle of saying and my circle of doing were always two different things. And in the back of my mind and in my heart, I knew, I knew that if my life was going to play out like it had always played out, that it wasn't going to last long. And I was curious that on this mission trip, would, would it be any different for me? Could it somehow be a, a time away with God that would cement something in my life so that I would never turn back? And I remember we were doing a vacation Bible school in a war refugee camp for El Salvadorians. And I remember sitting in this little cinder block building where we had our meals and somebody reached over and grabbed a cigar, a, cigar, a, a guitar. I want to go on that mission trip. That's the mission trip I'm leading now at 52. Reached for a guitar and started playing the song, I Have Decided to Follow Jesus. No turning back. No turn, no, though, though none go with me, still I will follow. Just started playing. And I knew that song was for me. And I, I just started weeping right there, just tears flowing. And I knew I'm never going back. And I remember soon after that, we were having a chapel service just for the kids. 
And I'm sitting in the back on these benches, right? There's just wooden planks all throughout, just creating a center aisle in this cinder block building of a church that uh, churches had gathered to build for these refugees from El Salvador. And they had had built a school. Our church had helped uh, build a a church and then also a, a, a house for missions teams when they would come. And, and I was sitting in the back, and, 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 and all the kids were rushing in, right? They were all excited, and, and, and there was this child in the front who was probably late, late elementary school, early middle school aged, and he was severely special needs. And his arms were flailing around, he was making noises, he, he, was, he was nonverbal, he couldn't talk, but he could make all kinds of noises. And, and, and his family had gotten him there early and parked him down towards the, the front. I have a picture of him in a, in, a, in a photo album, I'll never forget his face. And, 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 and all of these kids would rush in, and, and as they were rushing in, they all wanted to get to the front until they saw him. And then it was like they would break like water on a rock, right, because nobody wanted to sit next to this kid who was so strange. So all the kids, right, were all packed in the front, but then there was this big pocket around this kid. And I remember sitting in the back. It was one of the first times I've ever felt like God spoke to me and asked me to do something. But it was, it was as clear as day. I've never heard his voice, but I feel it. And I recognize that feeling now. He said, Fred, I want you to go sit next to that kid in the front of this church because I want you to show these other kids that it's okay. So I got up and Went and sat next down to this kid, right? And his arms are flailing around, and right? It's like church here. you got to bob and weave, right? <laughs> and as I was sitting on that pew, God spoke to me, and he said, Fred, this is what I did for you right here. I came to you when you couldn't come to me. And this is who I am. And this is what I do for people. When they're stuck where they are, when there's nothing they can do to change their circumstance or change their situation, I come and I show up in their life and I give them a chance. And for some of you tonight, he's given you a chance. And for some of you, I'm telling you, for some of you, it's one of your last chances because your circles have been so far apart and Jesus is holding the two of them together and your future hinges upon the choices that you're going to make in these next few minutes. Stand with me. I'm going to invite you to close your eyes right here just to create a moment of privacy for people. Just to, I'm not going to ask you to do anything else. We're not that kind of church. We're not going to trick you into doing stuff. This is just between you and God right here. But if you're here tonight and you would say, Fred, I've never made a vow of devotion to Christ. As I look back into the story of my life, I've never made a vow of devotion to Christ. I'm going to invite you to raise your hand right where you are. I'm not going to make you do anything else. not going to trick you into going somewhere. Or just, I just, This is just for you. This is your chance. Come on, yes, sir. Somebody else. This is your moment. I got another question tonight before we go into the song. If you're here tonight and you would say, Fred, I've, I've made a vow of devotion to Christ in my life, but my circles, they are far apart. They are far apart. My circle of saying and my circle of doing, it is as though they're on opposite ends of the planet. If that's you, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to ask you to do anything else. Just going to invite you to raise your hand where you are. 
Just raise your hand right where you are. Come on, yes, ma'am. Yes, sir. Young man, I see you back there. Somebody else. Yes, sir. Come on. Somebody else. This is your. This is, this is you. Say it to God. God, I want you to pull my, pull my circles together. Come on, I see you there in the back. Come on, somebody else. Yes, ma'am. In the middle. I see you back there. Somebody else. Your circles are moving in the wrong direction. Father, I pray for everybody here tonight who had a hand up. I pray for everybody here who had a hand up. Because I know there's a conversation that you've started with them tonight. And it's just the beginning of their quest. It's just the beginning. And I pray... Holy Spirit, that your presence in their life, your voice in their life is going to be loud enough to be deafening, but it's also going to be what it always is, which is indescribably comforting, that you're going to draw them in. Even for the people here tonight who of their hands in their pockets when they know that both should have been up in the air. Father, we pray, we pray for many more chances and many more opportunities for the circles of their life to collide. In Jesus' name, come on, everybody said together, amen. If you're here tonight and you want someone to pray with you at the end of our services, there's always people up front, there's somebody in the back. If you're up in the balcony, it's easy to get into that corner. If you want prayer, come on, you come. Let's worship together.